Well, our sermon text this morning is uh, we're continuing in our study in 1 Timothy, and we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there, once again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Give ear to the word of God. It says, Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, uh, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The Bible tells us man does not live by bread alone, even though we pray for our daily bread, but we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us in the dark to grope around and try to figure out who you are or to figure out the way of salvation through faith in Christ or even to figure out how you would have us to live out of gratitude for what you've done for us in saving us by your grace in Christ. Uh, we ask this morning that you would uh, feed us as we know we don't live by bread alone. Feed us by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us understanding. Work in us by your spirit once again and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants here, for it's in Christ's name that we ask all this. Amen. Well, in this brief passage at the end of 1 Timothy 1, uh, the Apostle Paul gives Timothy, which he calls again, remember in chapter 1, verse 2, he called him his true child in the faith. Here again, he calls him his child. Well, he gives his child a charge to keep or a command to keep uh, or more, he basically sets before him a charge and places it in his trust. And what was this charge? What charge did Paul command Timothy to keep as a pastor ordained unto gospel ministry? It was that he might, in verse 18, quote, wage the good warfare or literally war the good warfare or as the New American Standard puts it, fight the good fight. That's the charge he lays before Timothy. Even the language of this charge shows how serious a matter it was and how fearful in some ways it really was uh, for Timothy and anybody else who is in ministry. This charge, I think, that Paul gives Timothy tells us a little something, not the whole picture, but it tells us something about the nature, the real true nature of pastoral ministry in the church, the Bible, you might know, uses many different analogies or metaphors to describe ministry, uh, be it pastoring or eldering. It, it talks about in 1 Peter 5, 2, it describes it as shepherding the flock of God. So it's a, literally a pastoral imagery, a shepherding imagery. It uses sometimes, the Bible does, the imagery of construction or building a house. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 talks about uh, the pastor and the elder as a builder. Uh, the Bible uses uh, imagery from agriculture to describe ministry as well, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, planting, watering, and tending a vineyard, God's vineyard. And uh, as our text does even this morning, even uses military imagery, uh, that, that of waging warfare. All these things in some way describe at least part of what it means to serve in the ministry, it's as if there's no single picture or analogy that's sufficient to describe everything that is involved in the task of a pastor or an elder. Now, you might be looking down at this brief text this morning and asking yourself, 
You know, what does this have to do with me? If I'm if I'm not a pastor, you know, you're sitting there, you're thinking, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an elder. What does this have to do with me? Uh, especially if you don't think you're ever going to be ordained uh, to the work of ministry as a pastor or an elder. Well, I think there's a lot that you might uh, gain and should gain from this passage. The first thing is, who knows whether what God might have in store for you in the future? Who knows if you're a boy or a young man? Who knows whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, uh, head of all things for his church, might one day call you to the ministry, either as an elder or pastor or even as a deacon? If that's the case, who knows? You know, Paul's words to Timothy here and throughout the pastoral epistles may one day have a very direct and personal application in your life. And so to learn them now will serve you well. And for many of us, though, that's not the case. For many of the people in the church and many of our members, uh, those who confess the name of Christ and are members in Christ's church, even if you may never be for many reasons an elder or a deacon or a pastor, having a right view, a biblical view of the work of pastors and elders will serve you very well. It's good and beneficial for all of us who are in the church to have a right understanding of the work of which Christ has called his ministers for the sake of his flock. You know, we to have a right expectation, you know, very often in life, not just in the church, not just in ministry and, and things like that, but in all things, our expectations kind of set the the standard for good or for bad of what we want to have happen. And so if our expectations are false and they're not met, we might be unnecessarily troubled and grieved. But if our expectations are correct and are biblical, that will serve us well in how we view these things. Now, in some way, your pastors and elders, or even the deacons to some degree, are, according to our text, are called, or even, to use a military analogy, drafted into a kind of warfare. So the church, in some ways, is the, we we call the church sometimes on earth, the church militant. You know, we, we are, in some ways, when you think of the Old Testament, the book of, of Joshua, the wilderness wanderings, Joshua, when, the, when, he, when he led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and to the conquest of that land of promise. In a lot of ways, that's an analogy, an image of the church. And it's a, it's a military, in some ways, image. And so the church as a whole is called into warfare in some ways, in a spiritual sense, and the pastors and elders of the church are called to that in a more direct manner. Now, just because... This particular warfare described in Scripture is a spiritual one and is spiritual in nature. doesn't make it any less serious, doesn't make it any less perilous. In some ways, really, if you have a right way of looking at things biblically, in a lot of ways spiritual dangers are much more dangerous than earthly ones. And they're much, just as much to be uh, watched out for and taken care for. Now, Paul here... <coughs> is reminding Timothy, whom he calls his child again in verse 18. Think about this imagery. Paul, I mean, Paul really thought of Timothy as his son in the faith. He, he may have had a lot to do with Timothy being converted to Christ uh, and the fact that Paul had a genuine affection for him. Who used He used him and brought him along and kind of apprenticed him and taught him the ways uh, of a pastor and a church planter. And, but he's telling his son in the faith now, his child in the faith, that he's sending him forth to war. That's a, a scary thought for any parent when it comes to temporal things. Uh, no, no less so, I think, for Paul when he thought of Timothy. When he told him uh, in verse 3, when he reminds him that he told him to remain behind in Ephesus 
to set things in order. When he told him to stay behind, he was really sending him to the front lines in an ironic way. He was telling him he was sending him to war, and his task was not going to be an easy one, and that he would encounter enemies. He would encounter conflict. No one likes conflict. I don't. You probably don't. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's part of the nature of things, and it's, it's necessary to be willing to be involved in it. Now, our brief passage this morning touches also, if you may, you may have noticed, on the subjects of ordination to ministry and excommunication from the church. So we're going to deal with those things at least briefly in our time, Lord willing, in our text this morning. Well, the first thing we see in our text today was that Timothy was given a charge to keep. Look at verse 18. He says, Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may what? Wage the good warfare. That was the trust that the charge that he was entrusted with. And this trust from Paul, his father in the faith, was entirely in line with what had been said of, of Timothy when he was ordained to gospel ministry. This was something that was entrusted to him by God. And so Timothy, like all ministers, should answer and would answer to God for how he carries it out. When it's a charge entrusted to you by God, whether through Paul or through someone else, uh, through your church leadership, it's it's something, the implication is that he answers not just to Paul, he would answer to God for how he carried that charge out. Listen to the words of Hebrews 13.7. The writer of Hebrews says something similar there. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders. He's talking about leaders in the church, the officers of the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, and here it is, as those who will have to give an account. Now, if you're an elder in Christ's church, if you're a pastor, either a teaching elder or a ruling elder, that's a frightful thing to think about. It's a serious thing to be reminded of that you will give an account. I will give an account as a pastor for what I do as a pastor. Every elder will. And then he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, your pastors, your elders have a very serious obligation and job. Don't make it harder. <laughs> it's already hard enough uh, in some ways. Don't make it harder because that's not going to help. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. And they already have a lot to do. Well, Paul says in, in the text there that he speaks of, quote, the prophecies previously made about Timothy. Now, this, I think, is, is clearly indicating uh, it's a reference to Timothy's ordination to ministry. I think that is what he is Referring to, Paul mentions this again later in the letter, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Listen to what Paul writes there a few chapters from after this. He says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set uh, the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, or in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, and here it is, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
So he says in chapter 4, he talks about the gift that he was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on him. That's that's a picture of the church ordaining and setting someone apart for ministry. That was what was done. Uh, you know, We didn't have the Apostle Paul in our day, but even when I was ordained in this church, we had the elders come forward and lay hands. That's how we do things. That's how the Bible has always uh, taught it to be done. So when Timothy was set apart or ordained to public ministry of the gospel, the elders laid their hands upon him and prophecy of some kind was spoken of or spoken over him. Perhaps Timothy was even especially gifted beyond his peers by the Holy Spirit in some way. But think about this. Despite all that, despite how gifted Timothy was by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, that did not make diligence and hard work and practice and self-introspection and watch and persistence unnecessary, did it? All those giftings, as important as they are, didn't mean that it wasn't hard work, didn't mean that Timothy did not have to apply himself diligently to these things. Notice that ordination in our text and the scripture throughout, ordination is from God himself. Who ordained Timothy and every other pastor and elder since? Who is the one ultimately who ordains them to ministry? Was it the council of elders? Is it men? Is it the church itself, strictly speaking? No. Ordination is from God himself, but it always comes through the church. And those two things must not be separated or divorced. Those things must go together. No man may appoint himself to ministry. The Apostle Paul goes to great lengths in his epistles to make sure that we understand that he did not call himself to ministry. He says it in the first verse of this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? By command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. The only reason Paul himself was an apostle, no less, was the command of God and of Jesus Christ. And so ordination is from God himself, always and only, and it always comes through the church. No man may appoint himself to ministry. Self-appointed ministers are not true servants of Christ at all. If the Lord Jesus calls a man to the ministry of the gospel, it will be through his church that he does it. Even seminaries. Some people think seminaries make someone a pastor. They don't. They will. Good ones will tell you they don't. Seminaries do not ordain. Churches do. The elders of the church do that. God uses the church to set men apart for ministry. Here in our text, Paul tells Timothy that the good warfare that he was called to serve in was entirely in line with what was said of him and, and to him at his ordination. And so Timothy, Paul is telling him in some ways to bring this back to mind. Remember, remember what was said of you at your ordination. Remember the prophecies that were, that were spoken of and over you to encourage him in the work. Timothy was to call those things to his mind. When the going got tough, he was to be strengthened and encouraged by it. Having a solid assurance that you really have been called by God and set apart for ministry goes a long way when the going gets rough in the ministry, as it often tends to do. And so Paul, at least twice in this letter, brings Timothy's mind back to that very thing, to encourage him, to assure him in the work. Now you might know that warfare is not just an analogy of the work of ministry in the gospel, but it's also an analogy of the Christian life for all believers in Jesus Christ. Think about Ephesians chapter 6. Almost the whole chapter deals with this. But in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13, 
the Apostle Paul writes to the whole church at Ephesus and he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, here he says it again, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So if you're a member of a church, if you're a Christian right now and you're listening to this sermon and you're saying, well, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. I'm glad I'm not an elder. Guess what? I got bad news for you. I have good news and bad news and they're both the same news. You're still in the fight too. The entire church on this earth is the church militant. When you're in heaven with the Lord, when Christ comes or calls, then you'll be with the church triumphant and you'll be no longer in the fight and you can rest easy from your labors and from the fight. But this warfare, this spiritual warfare is not just for your pastors and elders. It's all of us. We're all in this fight together. Well, the second thing we see in our text, besides that charge that Paul gives to Timothy, the second thing we see here in our text, and it's something he's already said before, in, the, in this chapter, is the vital importance of faith and a good conscience. The vital importance of faith and a good conscience. Paul tells Timothy and us through him uh, how this good warfare was to be waged. It must be fought, what does he say in verse 19? It must be fought, quote, holding faith and a good conscience. That doesn't sound like the weapons of warfare that we normally would think of, but that's what Paul is saying. This is how you are to conduct yourself in this warfare. Faith. What is what does Paul mean when he says faith? Faith, I think, here has not to do just with Timothy's own personal faith in Christ, although it's involved in that. I think faith here has to do with holding to the true doctrine of the Christian faith. Timothy had to hold on to that to stay true to it, but he also needed to have a good conscience. It wasn't one or the other. It had to be both. So what's he, this is what he's talking about when he says that Timothy... Uh, was was his life and his doctrine were both important. It wasn't just what he believed and what he taught. It was also how he lived before God, according to that very doctrine. Both things had to go together. That's why he says in 1 Timothy 4.16, which we read a little earlier ago, he says, 1 Timothy 4.16, he tells Timothy, keep a close watch on two things, on yourself And notice that comes first. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, not one or the other. Not just the teaching, not just his walk. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Those are pretty strong words. He's not saying that Timothy would be a savior. He's saying that by by maintaining the gospel ministry by faith and a good conscience, You will be a faithful minister of the gospel, and sinners will be saved by faith in Christ. John Stott writes the following. He says, thus, belief and behavior, conviction and conscience, the intellectual and the moral, are closely linked. This is because God's truth contains ethical demands. We like like to keep things neat and tidy and divide things up, and and yet there are ethical demands in all of God's word. Doctrine implies duty and vice versa. 
This is what Paul was mentioning back in 1 Timothy 1.5, back earlier in the chapter, when he told Timothy that there was the aim, the purpose or the aim of his instruction to Timothy was that he might, might quote, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And what was the aim of that charge? Timothy was to stay behind in Ephesus. He was, he was to charge people, certain people that he would know who they were, not to teach any different doctrine. And here's the aim of it. He says, love that issues, excuse me, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's a theme that comes up again and again in, in this letter. He also reminds Timothy there that certain persons had, quote, swerved from these things, and as a result, what had happened? They had wandered away. When you swerve away, you know, it's a picture of, you know, they didn't have cars back then, obviously, but you think of someone driving and all of a sudden they veer off violently. That's the picture he's giving here. They swerved away from faith and a good conscience, and what was the result? They wandered away from the faith. They wandered away from the Christian faith. So false teaching and false living often go together. Which one is the chicken and which one is the egg? That's hard to tell. It's not always easy to tell which one comes first. Sometimes, sometimes, frankly, it's a person's unrepented of desires and sins that lead to swerving from the truth and teaching a different doctrine, heterodoxy or heresy. Other times, it's false doctrine that leads a person to live in a way that contradicts the truth of the gospel. It works both ways, and so both are important. I have personally seen in recent years instances of this very kind of thing, and you probably have too if you've paid attention to what goes on in the church all over the uh, the land. Pastors and teachers of God's word who were for a time, maybe for a long time, faithful uh, to the scriptures, suddenly change their tune on various sins. Very often it's sexual sins of some kind, they change their tune on those things, and then they begin to teach things contrary to the word of God. And what happens next? It's sadly very predictable and at times. Before long, it comes to light that they are eventually themselves engaged in that very immorality. In other words, they had a desire for that thing already, and so somehow they look for loopholes. They come up with loopholes in the scripture. They start teaching things to make way for their sins. Sometimes it goes the other way as, as well. And this last thing that Paul brings up in our text is he mentions not just the importance of faith and good conscience, but he, he, what's the result of, of denying those things or rejecting those things? It's shipwreck concerning the faith. You know, these warnings that Paul gives Timothy, he tells us in these last couple verses, these weren't hypotheticals. He wasn't saying this will never happen, but you better watch out for it just in case. He gives him two examples that Timothy would have known about. Look at verses 19 to 20, where he gives two well-known examples to Timothy of this very thing. He says, by rejecting this, that is faith with a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul kind of mixes his military metaphors here, doesn't he? He talks about soldiers, good warfare, and now he talks about sailors in a sense. He says that by deliberately casting off faith and a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Now, this was to be taken as a warning and an encouragement to Timothy, wasn't it? And we should take note of the sad example of those who have likewise made shipwreck concerning the faith. You know, we, we today, like Timothy in his day, also need to watch our lives and doctrine closely 
Both things together, both things are equally important. And Paul does something here in our text, as you've probably noticed, uh, that, that might go against might go against some of our delicate sensibilities in our day. He does something that no one likes to do today, that people shun, people get offended when you do this, but he names names. And he didn't just name names, he named names that Timothy would know firsthand. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any difference for him. He named names. And we too should take note of that, of that the set example of those who have done that. He names names precisely because Timothy knew of these men. He knew, probably knew them personally, probably had personal interactions and dealings with them. He mentions Hymenaeus, first of all, who he mentions later on in the very next book. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 19, this is what he writes. 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 19, Paul says to Timothy again, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead in, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, here it is, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. There's that phrase again, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What false doctrines did Hymenaeus teach? We don't know the full picture. What we do know, according to Paul here, is that his teaching and influence were, first, they were leading people into more and more ungodliness and sin. The effect of his doctrine, the fruits of his teaching, were sinful. And the second thing is, we know that he taught in some way, verse 18, that the resurrection has already happened. That may seem like a strange thing, but that's not as uncommon as you might Think, perhaps he taught that the resurrection itself was an invisible spiritual reality. Think about, in our own day, the Jehovah's Witnesses. What do they teach about the return of Christ, which precedes the second, the, uh, the, the resurrection and the judgment? The Jehovah's Witnesses taught and teach uh, that the second coming of Christ happened secretly and invisibly in 1914. Remember, the, the founder of that cult was uh, fond of setting dates, as many still seem to be fond of doing that. They set dates even though Jesus tells us no man knows the day or the hour. Well, some people just aren't satisfied with that. They don't want to have such limitations and say, well, I know the secret, so you better follow me. They set dates, then what happens? Jesus didn't come. They set the date. They revised the date. Prophets don't revise things. They revised the date. Jesus didn't come again. So what happens? They said, okay, 1914, and he didn't come. What happened? Well, he came. You just couldn't see it. It was invisible. It was secret. It was spiritual in nature. And so think about what that implies in some way that implies the judgment is already passed. The resurrection is already passed. Well, that's what in some way Hymenaeus himself taught. Now, if the resurrection has already passed and the judgment has already passed, you can kind of imagine how that might tend towards immorality of all kinds. It doesn't matter what you do in the body because it's all spiritual. It's a kind of a Gnostic kind of, of thought where the spiritual is important and the physical doesn't matter. Well, the scripture doesn't talk that way. The Bible doesn't teach that. Anyway, whatever the case was, he was he was causing God's name to be blasphemed, not only by his doctrine, but by the fruits of that doctrine, by leading God's people into sin and ungodliness. The glory of God's name was at stake. When you think of false teaching, false doctrine, 
That is one of the first things, maybe the first thing that we should be mindful of is the glory of God and that God's name might be, might not be blasphemed by such things. And so what did Paul do in the case of these two men that he names to Timothy here? They were excommunicated from the church. In verse 20, he says, he handed them over to Satan. That's a pretty strong way to say it. They were formerly, formerly cast out of the church by excommunication. Now this is done, you know, we, we talk about this, but this is done in the cases of scandalous public sins that are unrepented of, as well as for false doctrine that is unrepented of. First Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five, Paul writes this. He says to the Corinthian church, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And this is what he says. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. They were very, you know, our age is very tolerant. We love the word tolerant. Well, they were too tolerant. And Paul says they were bringing disrepute upon the gospel. And so they were to remove this person from among them. He says, for though absent in body, Paul wasn't there in person yet. Although absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, who's present in church discipline? The Lord Jesus Christ is, and he is active in it. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that it, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's pretty harsh sounding words, but it was for his good and for the good of the church. To be cast out of the church is in some sense to be cast out of the protection of the Lord that he grants within his church. For a professing Christian to be cast out of the church, even for a time, is it's the final step in church discipline after all other efforts have been exhausted to no effect without repentance on the part of the person. That's, that, it's the last straw, so to speak, the last desperate thing. And so, in regard to both these things, I would say, you know, if you're a pastor, we, whether it be myself or someone else, whether you're elders, if they are unwilling to do this, if they're unwilling to name names when need be, to, to charge people not to teach false doctrine, and when it comes to it, if they're unwilling to cast someone out who is disrupting the unity and health of the church, um, you need a new pastor. You need, you need new elders. If they're if they're not willing to do that, uh, they are not a true servant of Christ, and they are not waging the good warfare. It's not pleasant. No one likes to do it. If, if you have a pastor on the other side of the coin that seems to delight in such a thing, you might need a new pastor too. If you enjoy church discipline, there's something wrong with you. If you avoid it altogether, there's something wrong with you. There's, it's got to be a balance somewhere in the middle, but it's necessary to do um, to be cast out of the church should be a fearful thing for any professing Christian. And yet how many in our day, I can't help but think of it as, as ironic and sad, how many in the church today, notwithstanding our own present circumstance where we can't gather, how many professing Christians today effectively cast themselves out by not joining a church and refusing to attend public worship? I don't think they understand what they're doing. They may or may not even be believers, but they don't understand. They're, they're essentially casting themselves out of the protection that God gives, that Christ gives in defending his church from within the church. They are, in some sense, 
delivering themselves over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. They were putting themselves in harm's way. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, you think of a, a sheep, a group of sheep, and one wanders off. The one that wanders off is the one that gets picked off. It's not a safe thing to do. Now, Jesus will, he knows those who are his, and he will bring them back and seek them out. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a healthy or good thing to be outside of, of the church. Now, notice this was not to be done in such a way as to presume they wouldn't ever be brought back to repentance. The goal of church discipline, remember, the, you might know that in the Reformation, they often talked about the three marks of the true church. Here's a history lesson. The three marks of the true church is the, the faithful preaching of the word of God, the, the right administration of the sacraments, and the third one is the faithful exercise of church discipline. And so by those marks, to, fa- to fail to have any of those three, we would mean that in some sense it's not even a true church. So discipline is important. But what's the goal of church discipline? Not just excommunication, but all church discipline of any kind. What is the goal of it? The goal is, is the purity of the church, but not just that. The goal is, by the grace of God, the hope of restoring the sinner to repentance. The goal isn't to cast someone out. That may be the result. That's not the goal of even that. The goal is to, by God's grace, see them renewed to repentance. It's a wake-up call. It's meant to be a wake-up call. Second Corinthians chapter 2, you might know that in that chapter, Paul tells the Corinthian church to restore that brother that he told to send, remember he told before to cast them out, to deliver that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That man evidently repented. But they weren't, you know, before they were too tolerant. Now they weren't letting him back in. And what did Paul tell them to do? He told them to restore, he says in verse 7 of Second Corinthians 2, to forgive and comfort him, to not be too severe towards him. They were, the whole goal was to restore the man by getting him to repent. And so the, the goals, the purposes of church discipline is the glory of God, first and foremost, the purity and health of the church. Secondly and last uh, but not least, Lord willing, the repentance and, and the restoration of the sinner. That's the point. So the point should never be punitive to just get rid of them. Oh, well, now we're done with this person. The point should be to have them repent. And when they do repent, we should welcome them back with open arms. That's the way it is supposed to be. But that doesn't sound very easy, does it? That's not a very simple, easy-sounding picture. That's why probably why Paul likened this to, good, to waging the good warfare. It wasn't something that was easy. If it was easy, anybody would do it. He's saying, Timothy, you, this is going to be hard, and you need to be faithful in doing these things. Now, may the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church, head of all things for the church, may he grant that all of us, especially our pastors and elders, might be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, that we might be willing to endure hardship and fight the good fight of faith, holding fast to faith in a good conscience and charging others not to teach false doctrine to Christ's sheep that is not in accordance with the gospel and godliness in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray.